0: Remain standing for our epistle lesson from Romans 1. I'm going to read from the handout, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God resulting in salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. <clears throat> For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. For what is known about God is visible to them because God has made it visible to them. For his unseen attributes, even his eternal power and deity, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood by what was made. ...so that they are without excuse. For although they have known God, they have not glorified Him as God or given thanks to Him, but have become futile in their reasoning, and their uncomprehending hearts have been darkened. Claiming to be wise, they have shown themselves fools, and have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the likeness of the image of mortal humanity, and of birds and four-footed animals and reptiles. Therefore... God has also given them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that they disgrace their bodies among themselves. They have indeed exchanged the truth of God for the lie and have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. Because of this, God has given them over to disgraceful passions, For their females have exchanged the natural sexual function for that which is contrary to nature. And the males, likewise, abandoning the natural sexual function of the female, have become inflamed in their desire for one another. Males committing shameful acts with males and receiving in themselves the due punishment for their delusion. And just as they have not deemed it worthwhile to have God in their knowledge, so God has given them over to a worthless mind to do things that are not fitting being filled with all manner of unrighteousness fornication wickedness greed malice they are full of envy murder strife deceit ill will they are gossips slanderers God haters insolent arrogant boastful inventors of evil disobedient to parents without understanding without loyalty without unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. They know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve death, yet they not only do them, but also applaud those who practice them. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Help us to understand and believe your word, Lord God. May we not have dull, depraved, worthless minds, but may we be shaped and transformed by your word and by your spirit working through your word, the spirit who lives in us. We ask for this, for Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Before we move on to Romans 2 next week, we need to, to tie up some loose ends in the second half of Romans 1, which is very dense. For example, a question that naturally arises from the passage is, what about people who never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says no one has an excuse But how can we say that people are without excuse if the Scriptures have never been translated into their language and and they've never had the gospel proclaimed to them? Never heard of Jesus. Never heard the name. It's also crucial before we continue marching through Romans that we have a firm handle on God's wrath and God's righteousness. And today we'll dive deeper into these two key doctrines, two key concepts. To understand the second half of Romans 1, we must appreciate the connection between verses 16 and 17, which are about the saving righteousness of God, and verses 18 to 32, which are about the condemning wrath of God. Specifically, I want to focus your attention on Paul's logic here at the beginning, on his logic in verses 16 to 20, kind of where he makes this transition when you see the connection between these two passages. So really, verses 18 to 32 would be considered a, a passage, a pericope, a unit. But I'm including verses 16 and 17 because they're tied together. And you can't really know why he's talking about what he is talking about in verses 18 to 32 if you don't know what he said in verses 16 and 17. So in those five verses, 16 to 20, each statement is, le- is linked to the preceding Statement by the conjunction for. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. The same verb, revealed. Verse 19, for what is known about God is visible to them. John Stott came up with, the idea of presenting verses 16 to 20 in the form of a dialogue with Paul. We can imagine Paul being interviewed. He starts off saying in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, why not, Paul? Why aren't you ashamed? He says, because the gospel is the power of God, resulting in salvation for everyone who believes. Okay, but how so? How, how so, Paul? Well, verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The way, in other words, the way in which sinners are made right with God has been revealed in the gospel. Okay, but, so why is this necessary, Paul? Why do we need God to give us a, an alien outside righteousness? Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. Well, how do they suppress the truth, Paul? Verse 19, for what is known about God is visible to them because God has made it visible to them. Verse 20, for his unseen attributes, even his eternal power and deity, his godness, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood. By what was made, so that they are without excuse. So these verses 16 to 20 speak of three ways God reveals Himself to us. Three different kind of dimension, dimensions or aspects of His revelation to us. And, and let's take them in reverse order. In reverse order, He reveals His deity, what we could call His divine glory and power. Verses 19 and 20. He reveals his condemning wrath, verse 18. And he reveals his saving righteousness, verses 16 and 17. That's the logical and historical order of how God reveals himself. First, God reveals his divine glory in creation and everything that we see by what was made, verses 19 and 20. Then God reveals his condemning wrath against sinners who suppress their knowledge of the creator. Verse 18. And finally, in the gospel, God reveals his saving righteousness, which is his way of making sinners righteous before him. All of these ideas hang together. It's what, Paul's, it's what this passage is all about. And we can't appreciate the divine glory of God, the power and majesty of his godness, apart from understanding rightly his condemning wrath. And his saving righteousness. We can't appreciate his condemning wrath apart from understanding his divine glory and his saving righteousness. And we can't appreciate his saving righteousness without understanding his divine glory and his condemning wrath. These three things hang together. And if you're gonna make sense of Romans 1, verses 16 to 32, you you need to, we need to have a An understanding of all three of these angles. They hang together, and the Creator, God, reveals them to us everywhere, either in His Word or in His creation or both. When we talk about God's wrath, what we mean is God's anger. The anger or wrath of God against sin and sinners is intense. And it's constant. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath, how often? Every day, the text says. God's condemning wrath will never cease to exist as long as there are sinners and sins. And yet we mustn't assume that God's wrath is like man's wrath. Although it's possible, remotely possible, for humans to have what we call righteous indignation. It's possible for humans to have that. It's, but human anger is mostly unrighteous. We, we have a hard time pulling off righteous anger. James 1.20 says, The wrath of man... The anger of man does not produce, produce the righteousness of God. And James there in that verse uses the same exact word for anger or wrath that Paul uses in Romans 1.18. And James clearly distinguishes between God's anger and man's anger. The, the, the wrath of man, James says, does not produce righteousness. It's unrighteous, essentially, right? With humans, anger and unrighteousness are usually parallel activities, okay? They go together. But with God, anger is parallel with righteousness. So whereas man's anger produces unrighteousness, God's anger is an expression of his justice, his righteousness, his goodness, That's what what Psalm 711 says. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. And then the key to understanding God's intense daily wrath, the the key to helping us remove God's wrath from the realm of human-like arbitrary impulse is to see his wrath as a judgment that is based on righteous standards. Paul's going to say, In our next passage, Romans 2, verse 5, in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. God's wrath comes as a result of judgment, His judgment. The the last verse in Romans 1 calls God's judgment His righteous decree. God's wrath is God's judgment. And God's judgment is the result of comparing unrighteous behavior with, to a righteous standard, his standard. You see, when God judges someone, he's judging that person against the standard of his righteous laws and the standard of his established order and creation. Our anger tends to be irrational, uncontrolled emotion that is tainted with vanity and malice and animosity and the desire for revenge. But God's anger is absolutely free of such poison. God's wrath is almost entirely different from man's. God never loses his temper, never flies off the handle, never spirals out of control in a fit of vindictive anger. God's wrath is always intense, but it's always in control, always righteous, always just, always proportionate. It's always directed at unrighteousness that deserves every bit of the wrath of God that he is pouring out on it, on that unrighteousness. But God's wrath is not directed against unrighteousness in a vacuum No, it's directed against the unrighteousness of people who actively suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. It's not just that they are doing wrong even though they know better. It's worse than that. They've made a conscious decision to live for themselves and for their passions instead of for God and others. They're actively and deliberately suppressing any truth that challenges their self-centered existence. In fact, they even applaud other people for engaging in the same sins because it makes them feel better about their rejection of God. The only righteous response God could have to such persistent and willful rebellion is what? Is anger? Wrath. That's, that's the only righteous response he could have. Right? Can you imagine a God who was neutral to sin? A God who didn't care enough about his righteousness or his righteous standards to punish violations of his laws? That, that would be even worse than a human judge who saw no need to punish lawbreakers. Such a human judge would not be loving or righteous. Those aren't the first adjectives that would come to mind. He wouldn't be a good judge at all, actually. In the same way, a God who overlooks sin would not be a righteous judge. God never overlooks sin. He never sweeps sin under the rug. The anger of God is nothing less than his holy hostility toward evil. His righteous refusal to condone sin. His righteous refusal to come to terms with unrighteousness. He can't, he won't do that. The wrath of God is on display now. He displays it every day the psalmist says, by giving sinners over to their sins. Much of verses 24 to 31 is a catalog of the sins that God gives sinners over to, and, and that's not a comprehensive list by any stretch. And in, a, in about 10 or 11 other places, Paul lists other sins that God gives sinners over to. In this life, the main punishment for sin is is more sin. God punishes idolatrous sinners by giving them over to more of the sins of their choice. Sin, you see, is self destructive. It destroys the self and it destroys the community you're in. And that's one aspect of God's punishment, particularly on those who are outside of Christ. But even those of us who are in Christ, we we see how self-destructive sin is. If you steal from your employer at work, you, you hurt yourself and your employer, as well as everyone who works for the employer and ultimately everyone who depends on your employer. This is God's wrath on display. If you cheat on your taxes, you only end up hurting yourself and others. If you fornicate, if you enjoy sexual pleasure, With someone who is not your spouse, you destroy yourself. You destroy the person you're fornicating with and you hurt everyone who is connected to either of you. If you give in to righteous anger and take revenge, you destroy yourself as well as others. If you look at sexual images on the internet, you destroy yourself and hurt a bunch of other people, including people you don't even know. And you also help expand a satanic industry. Never think that your sin is only damaging you. You exist in community. You're a member of humanity. As a believer, you're a member of the body of Christ. Everyone connected to you is hurt by your sins, including your secret sins, your private idols. God's punishment is on display every day as he continues to give idolatrous people And idolatrous families and idolatrous nations over to more and more sin. That's the judgment of God in the present. God's righteous and condemning wrath is on display constantly. But the wrath of God is not just a present reality, it it also lies ahead as a future reality. At the end of history, when Jesus returns, God's wrath will be exercised finally and permanently on all manner of sin, both human and angelic. Paul hints at this in the last verse of Romans 1, where he refers to God's righteous decree. And what is God's righteous decree? It's that those who practice such things deserve death. And the death Paul refers to here is not just physical death, but it's eternal death, eternal hell, eternal punishment. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And so when he says death there in that verse, and as well as elsewhere, he's talking about eternal deaths. The wages of sin is eternal death. And Paul's going to talk about this future wrath More explicitly in in chapter 2, again, verse 5, where he says that in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath, for the day of wrath, when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. So the wrath of God is and will be his righteous judgment against those who violate his righteous standards. But God doesn't issue his wrath quickly, hastily nor does he find his deepest pleasure in pouring out his wrath on the wicked. The scriptures are clear that God is first and foremost a God who loves to show mercy. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger Forever, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, actually, God will keep his anger forever against those who don't repent, those who do not turn from their sins and turn to Christ for salvation. When Psalm 103 says that the Lord will not keep his anger forever, it's only talking about the people of God, genuine believers, those who are in Christ. For those who put their trust in Jesus, God's anger against them, against you, fellow believer, Has been dealt with. God has zero anger, zero wrath against those who believe in the gospel of Christ. His wrath against Christians hasn't been swept under the rug, it's been satisfied forever in the death of Jesus on the cross. This leads to the natural, naturally, to the question that I asked at the beginning of the sermon, what about people who never hear that gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ? They never hear about the cross. That can save them. In the context of Romans 1, the question most often asked, you've probably asked it yourself or been in a discussion where people are asking the question, what about people in Africa who have never heard the gospel? Is it really fair for God to pour out his wrath on them, on on these ignorant people that that they're ignorant of the gospel? Don't don't they have an excuse? An excuse for not believing in Christ since they've never heard of him? Well, there are a few problems with this question and, and and the way it gets asked, typically. For starters... For starters, God isn't fair or unfair. These these words those words are they imply human standards that we try to impose on God, and, and God isn't worried about conforming to human notions of fair and unfair. According to Scripture, God is righteous and just, not fair that word's not used. Our task is not to determine whether God is fair. Our our task is to de- try to understand why all of his judgments are perfectly just. So rather than conforming him to our standard, standard we conform ourselves to his standard, knowing from the beginning that they are just. Someone might respond, "Okay, pastor. But since you're dodging the question, uh, Let me ask it another way. And this time I won't use that that word unfair since it seems to be a buzzword for you. So allow me to ask it this way. How is it that God is just when he condemns people to judgment who have never heard the gospel of Christ? Well, here's the problem with that question. Listen carefully. Here's the problem. Romans 1 doesn't say anything about the wrath of God coming upon those who don't believe the gospel. Okay, now it's important right now for you not to hear what I didn't say and for you only to hear what I did say. Before your, you know, your yellow flags start, start going up. Those of you who are orthodox and Bible believing, maybe had a yellow flag or two go up there. Romans 1 says nothing about the wrath of God coming upon those who don't believe the gospel. Instead, it says the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of humans who suppress what they know. Those who have never heard of Jesus will not be condemned to hell for not believing in him. God isn't going to judge people for not doing something that they never had an opportunity to do. So am I saying that those who have never heard of Jesus get to go to heaven and have eternal life? No, I'm not saying that at all. Those who have never heard of Jesus will be judged and sent to hell, but it won't be because they failed to believe in Jesus primarily. It will be because they reject, according to Romans 1, it will be because they rejected the truth that they did know, that they could see. God's eternal power and deity was made clear to them during their lifetimes. But instead of turning to their creator, they worshipped creation. They made themselves the center of their world instead of God. And that's what everyone does apart from Christ. Apart from God's saving power. Apart from the gospel, everyone turns to idols instead of to God. Apart from God's saving power in Jesus, everyone suppresses the truth that is abundantly clear to them. Their idolatry produces rampant ungodliness and unrighteousness, and so they deserve eternal death. It's not their fa- failure to believe the gospel that earns them everlasting destruction in hell. They, they've already earned it before, before they hear the gospel if they hear it, or whether they hear it. It's their rejection of God and their embrace of sin and idolatry that invites God's just and holy wrath. So that's how you answer that question when people say, well, they've never heard of Jesus. Well, that, they're not being judged for that. They're being judged because they hate God. If they don't repent and turn to God, they deserve, Paul says, death. God has established in nature, in creation, a testimony to his powerful and glorious existence. Creation is screaming the truth about God. But humans by nature push down their knowledge of God. They they try to make it go away, though they can't. They They try to hold it underwater, but it's too buoyant, and it keeps popping up above the surface. On judgment day, every human will be held accountable for what they have been given objectively, truly. Some will be judged for rejecting the gospel, the gospel that they heard and knew but failed to obey. Their judgment will be greater. Others, though, those who never heard the gospel will also be judged Not for rejecting Christ, whose name they never heard, but for rejecting the truth that was visible to them in every corner of creation. And we call this revelation that God gives to everyone general revelation. Special revelation is what God reveals to us in Scripture and in the person of Jesus. General revelation, or what I like to call creational revelation, is what he reveals to us in what he has made. They were given enough light about God to turn from their idolatry and seek him, but they loved their idols too much. So far, we've contrasted the wrath of God or the wrath of God with the wrath of man. And we've seen that God's wrath, unlike man's, is always righteous, always just, even when it might seem to us unfair. Now we're going to move to the comparison between The wrath of God and the righteousness of God. God's wrath condemns sinners. God's righteousness saves sinners. And at the heart of the righteousness of God is the idea of substitution. Substitution. We lack a righteousness of our own. So God, in His infinite mercy, provided a substitute righteousness. He provided a substitute righteousness for sinners by sending His Son to live a sinless life and to, die for, to pay for our sins on the cross. God's condemning wrath and God's saving righteousness are not at odds at all. These are not contradictory character traits of God. They both define God's character. If you take away either one, either quality, you no longer have the God of the Bible. However, however, I'm going to qualify that just a touch. The condemning wrath of God is not as close to his heart As his saving righteousness. The condemning wrath of God is not as close to his heart as his saving righteousness. Now, condemning wrath faithfully defines God's character, it accurately defines God's character. But saving righteousness, we could say, centrally defines God's character. Other theologians described God's judgment and wrath as his strange work. The the, the judgment of God is his strange work, alien work, unnatural work, some, some called it. Mercy comes naturally to God, they would say, but punishment comes unnaturally to God. God does not delight In the death of sinners, as Bobby read from Ezekiel 37. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote, when God exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. It's not an end in itself. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to showing mercy, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act of mercy itself pleases him for itself, or in itself. There is no reluctance in him. Therefore, in Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says, he does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when he comes to speak of showing mercy, he says he does it, with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as the as the expression is in Jeremiah thirty two, forty one. And therefore acts of justice are called his strange acts, Goodwin says, and his strange work in Isaiah twenty eight, twenty one. But when he comes to his to, to show mercy, he rejoices over them, to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. End quote. And speaking of the wicked Jonathan Edwards wrote, God is well pleased if the wicked forsake their evil ways, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. End quote. I got both of those quotes, by the way, from Dane Ortlund's book, Gentle and Lowly, some of you have read. It's in the chapter called His Natural Work and His Strange Work. And if you haven't read that book, you really need to. For some of you, it might be the most important, uninspired book you ever read. And here's how Ortland concludes that chapter. Quote, left to our own natural intuitions about God, we will conclude that mercy is his strange work. And judgment, his natural work. Rewiring our vision of God as we study the scripture, we see, helped by the good, the great teachers of the past, that judgment is his strange work and mercy his natural work. He does afflict and grieve the children of men, but not from his heart. End quote. There's indisputable evidence that this is true. Irrefutable historical evidence that God delights in pouring out his saving righteousness on sinners and does not delight in pouring out his condemning wrath on sinners. The evidence I'm talking about is the crucifixion of God's son. On the cross, God himself became your substitute. He received his own wrath. God received the wrath of God so that you could receive his righteousness. On the cross, the God-man Jesus Christ absorbed God's condemning wrath against sinners so that whoever believes in him will not perish eternally but have life eternally. God didn't have to send his only begotten son. He wasn't required to do this. He wasn't required to save anyone. He did not owe mankind any mercy. It it would not have been wrong or unjust, certainly not unfair, for God to send every last human being to eternal punishment, to death, The death that we all deserve, the punishment that we all deserve. And yet, God so delights in showing mercy that He devised a plan to His own hurt. He devised a plan for turning His wrath aside. He couldn't just say, Well, it doesn't exist. I'm not wrathful. I'm going to overlook it. He couldn't do that. So He devised a plan to His own hurt. For turning his wrath aside. A plan for satisfying his own perfect, pure, righteous anger and judgment against sin. He came up with the only plan that could propitiate his own wrath. Propitiate means satisfy. The only plan that could turn his condemning anger away from sinful humans without violating his righteous standards of morality and justice. The plan that God came up with in eternity, a plan that he he formulated before the foundation of the world was for God to endure his own wrath for you. You see, God loves showing mercy. And he loves showing mercy so much. He loves pouring out his saving righteousness on sinners so much that he was willing to receive your do punishment so that you could receive his undeserved mercy. He took your deserved punishment so you could get his undeserved mercy. He became a victim of his own strange act, strange work of judgment, so you could receive his natural work of mercy. In Isaiah 53, the text says that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus on the cross. In another place in Isaiah 53, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Galatians 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ's death. Christ's death was for those who deserve God's wrath, God's judgment. And his death was fully adequate to satisfy all of God's condemning wrath because Jesus didn't need to die for his own sins. And because being God, his atoning death was of an infinite worth, magnitude. This is the righteousness of God. This is what Romans is all about. This is the good news. The gospel. The good news is that God's wrath against you has been dealt with. Praise be to God. It's been turned aside because God judged himself in the person of Christ instead of you. And what would motivate God to do this? To make such a sacrifice. He didn't have to. So why did he do it? What drove him to devise this plan that was to his own hurt? Why was he willing to be your substitute? Why was he so intent on taking your unrighteousness and giving you his righteousness? It wasn't because he had to. Wasn't because it was the only fair thing to do. The answer is that this is just the kind of God that He naturally is. This is who He is. It's not who He became, it's not who He had to be to conform to some other standard. It is just who he is. It comes naturally. He naturally delights in showing mercy. Yes, condemning wrath faithfully and accurately defines God's character. We can't back down from that at all. But saving righteousness centrally defines God's character. Mercy, you see, is Close to his heart. It is in his heart. Which is to say that you, fellow believer, fellow Christian, you are close to his heart. You are in his heart. He delights in showing you mercy. He delights in forgiving your sins. He delights just in you. He delights in you because you are his child. And he paid the infinite price so that he could be with you and you could be with him forever in the new Jerusalem. Thanks be to God for this undeserved gift of God's righteousness. Let's pray. God, enlarge our, heart, our hearts so that we can more fully believe and understand and glory in the cross of Christ for our salvation. Thank you for turning your wrath away and for giving us your righteousness. This week, help us to live as those who truly have been redeemed from unrighteousness, and so help us to walk in righteousness, to please you, knowing and being grateful for the free, the, the, the free salvation, the undeserved gift that you have given to us in Jesus. Enlarge our hearts, and enlarge our gratitude, enlarge our faith, and strengthen and extend our obedience. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.